0: I want to welcome you all back to our education symposium, and uh, I have a Bible study for us tonight. I hope that will please some of you more than philosophy did last night, although I think it was important, philosophy, and we'll spend at least a moment reviewing it this evening, and I see also justification for another children's story in this audience, but let's begin with a prayer. I'm going to kneel, and if you can where you are, go ahead, and if not, just stay seated. Okay? Okay. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would bless our evening as you have our day, that as we open up the Holy Bible, that you would make its meaning apparent, that your spirit would guide. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I could start with the children's story, but right now the children are already paying attention, so I think I'll get to it later. When some of you start to go to sleep, I'll use it, and we'll get to it. Tonight we're talking about the Bible versus human wisdom, and I can hardly think of a more thorough contrast we could make. But maybe in your mind's eye, if you were here last night, you could just imagine that there are perhaps six categories of... Sources that people go to as the way they figure out their ultimate truth about things like religion, for example, about God or salvation. Can someone just tell me what are one of those six ways people come at their ideas about truth? So, so I, I heard... I heard revelation, and I heard others. Reason. 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 That first one there, by thinking it through, what's another way? Experiment. Experiment. You're getting them in order this time, aren't you? Re- <laughs> Experiment. <laughs> intuition. Tradition. Tradition is one. Authority. Uh, authority is another one. But like, and intuition. And intuition. And re- okay, I think we got them all, and uh, some of them five or six times. So <laughs> uh, what we have there are a list of ways And I probably should add a thought that is common sense. When I say that revelation is the only one that is ultimately reliable, I don't mean to say that the other ones aren't useful. If it wasn't for experiment, we just would not have light. You can't get from the Bible how to make an incandescent bulb. You just won't find it there. If we didn't use our intuition, ladies, you don't have time to research men when you first meet them. Right? Aren't you glad you have something to help you get started in that process? And when it comes to reason, uh, it, this is the thing that separates us from the animals. Uh, it has a great value in trying to figure out what is true, even when it comes to, to Scripture. The reason is, is important. So I'm not trying to say, when, when I exalt the Bible as the ultimate way of knowing truth, I'm not making light of research methods and other ways we come at truth, there's only a couple of them that I consider to be very weak. Um, And even them have some validity. Tradition, I think, is quite weak as a way of arriving at truth. However, in practical life, tradition is really important because as you grow up and your parents teach you to brush your teeth, you begin brushing your teeth long before you understand about microbial developments in the gums. If it wasn't until you did your own research and saw all that stuff for yourself, it would be too late for your teeth. So we can't afford in life to start at scratch and build up from zero knowledge and only practice things that we've learned by our own experience. We really do have to build something on the backs of others. Do you follow what I'm talking about? That we can't start at scratch, but what about religion? Even in religion, we, we have to start there. It's because of our parents that we even believe in God. And some of you grew up maybe not believing in God because of your parents. But it's because of our parents that we start out believing that there is a God, believing that... The reason you believed the Bible when you were 10 wasn't because you had tested the prophecies of dead and revelation. It was because your parents and your teachers believed the Bible. So I'm just trying to say again that tradition has a use... It's just not ultimately reliable. And I'm glad we have something that's ultimately reliable. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians has some of the most interesting ideas regarding human wisdom that you'll find anywhere in the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1... We're going to look in verse 19 at a prophecy that Paul uses more than once. It's an Old Testament prophecy that Paul makes reference to. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the who? Of the wise. And I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. let's go to verse 20 that might make a commentary for us in 19 where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this world I really don't think Paul's asking where are they located if he was the answer would be in our universities but I don't think he's asking where can you find these people he's asking where are these people in relation to truth or in relation to wisdom. Uh, Where are these people in relation to what is accurate? Notice what it says in the end of the verse. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The world has people that it has exalted as the most eminent persons in their fields. There would be a man who knows more than anyone else about certain types of codfish. I don't know who it is. I'm just speaking theoretically. There are experts What the Bible says is, the people who might claim to be experts in the field of religion, uh, God does not respect their claim to expertise, and He doesn't expect you to respect it either. If a man tells me that the Bible means such and such, and asks me to believe it on the basis of the fact of who he is or his acquired degrees, I have no respect for that kind of persuasion. The truth is that a man who studies in a university, who starts out as a Baptist and gets his Ph.D. in theology, more or less likely will be a Baptist when he finishes. And a man who starts out as a Quaker will likely be a Quaker when she finishes. And someone who starts out as a Catholic will likely be a Catholic when he finishes. What I'm trying to say is that these three people are just like the Adventist boy, who's still an Adventist when he finishes, although that's not as likely as the other three. Uh, What's going on in this case is that these people, before they did their 15 years of theological research, they had certain ideas about the big picture. And you know when they finish their 15 years, they have the same ideas, or let me bring it just a little closer to home, something that you maybe can relate to. It was my first year of teaching. It was my most discouraging month of my first year of teaching. Uh, What was going on, where I was, well, in the North American division, and you remember it, some of you remember it, there was quite an argument over the issue of tithing. Uh, The issue was, where is it legitimate to send your tithe? And... uh, so, my position as a teacher at that point was just very plain. I gave my tie to the conference. I did that every week. But I wasn't talking about this issue. But my students were talking about it. And you know where they got their views? It's from their parents. Well, what, what I noticed in my class is that they really were getting into this, and I thought, this is a great chance for me to teach them how to do their own research. Because their heart is in it. You know, they want to know. Like, I don't know if they want to know, but they want to (laughs) teach. That's where they're at. They want to share. So I assigned them to write a research paper. I think I said five pages I was looking for. I said, I will not grade you on your conclusion, but I will grade you on the quality of your data. How well your thoughts are organized, how much work you've put into finding facts. I want to grade you on that. I was a hard first-year teacher. A lot of first-year teachers are pretty tough. And uh, I, I graded them that way. And this is what discouraged me so badly. It wasn't the amount of research they did. One student turned in 20 pages. Another 11 pages. They really got into it. What hurt my soul is that I knew the position every one of them had before they did the research. And when their research was done, not one of them had changed their position. It just really, it it messed me up because I had been operating under the idea that before you do research, you're guessing. But after you do research, now you know what's true. But what I saw is before you do research, you're uh, parroting, and after you do research, you're parroting with authority. And it just wasn't what I expected. I hope I didn't discourage you by telling you what discouraged me. But I've learned some things since then. I think it is possible that people can, in research, change their opinions. Are you still in First Corinthians? I see your Bible's open. And my blue paper is right there. The fact is that God did not intend that we would find out what is truth by relying upon the most educated people. He didn't intend that. Let's go to the next verse. For after that, verse 21 For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of what? Preaching to save them that believe. The foolishness. What's foolish about preaching? Well, what's foolish is that it's not what people think is wise. Do you see in the next verse what people were looking for? The Jews, when it came to to their epistemology, at least in this verse, the Jews were distinctly at uh, experience. Do you see it there? What were they looking for? They were looking for a sign. They wanted to know by a miracle why... They even said that when Jesus was on the cross. Didn't they say that to him? They said, let him come down and we will will believe in him I don't think it's true I mean I think they would have believed that he was the son of God if he had come down but it wouldn't have been the kind of belief that qualifies for faith it would have been something else something that God so doesn't value that he very rarely shows up with great power because if he showed up with great power he'd get a lot of that, that stuff that the opinion that he is real And uh, we'd get confused. We might think that it was faith when it's not. I'm gabbing too much. You'd rather look at the Bible. So let's do that. Look down at verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Really, Paul goes on in this chapter quite a while. We won't read it all, but you could read it in your own time. Quite a while, making the contrast between God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And the contrast isn't just to say that God is wiser and men is less wise the contrast is to say that God is looking for ways to make this wisdom look as foolish as it is he really wants to undermine this wisdom in our minds he wants to discredit it and if I were the devil reading first Corinthians I would think what I would aim at now is to really credit this I'd want to give this just a lot of esteem for if no other reason the fact that God is attacking it here now look at chapter 2 It's right near you. Chapter 2 and verse 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Was Paul capable of using uh, strong rhetoric and uh, charismatic methods he was and when you look here you'll see in verse two that the reason he's not speaking not using that is because of a choice on his part not an incapability but a choice you see I determined in verse two well why Paul why aren't you using your skills look at verse five that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man but in the power of God Uh, brother James Wood you should know that my wife was using your name just a moment ago she was but uh, she was a little confused about who you was were are you are aren't you let me get back to what I'm talking I'm in 1st Corinthians if you have Bibles those of you who have come in recently 1st Corinthians chapter 2 Paul said not only is he not going to use wisdom he's choosing not to use it but he has a reason and what is the reason HE DOESN'T WANT HIS PEOPLE, THE ONES THAT ARE LISTENING TO HIM, TO SAY, WOW, PAUL IS A GREAT PREACHER. PAUL REALLY KNOWS HOW TO PROVE A POINT. PAUL WAS HOPING THAT INSTEAD THEY WOULD SAY, WOW, THE BIBLE IS AN AMAZING BOOK. GOD IS INCREDIBLY WISE. AND THAT CONTRAST It was a worrisome thing to Paul that if he used his rhetorical skills, it would mess up the contrast or the point he was trying to make about God's great wisdom. Let me see if I missed anything here. Just give me a moment. Turn back to 1 Kings. And I don't have this reference memorized, so I'm going to look at my note. 1 Kings chapter 4. We're reading about Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 4 and looking around verse 30. Quite an incredible thing we're about to read here. And Solomon's wisdom... Are you there? 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 30. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt do you know even in Solomon's day there were people that had a reputation of really having it together in terms of knowledge and philosophy and science and the two categories of people that were really advanced in that way they were the people of the east and the people of Egypt and how did Solomon compare to those two? you know he excelled them now that's interesting because his teachers didn't excel them Solomon had teachers, and his teachers were not the most eminent men on earth. They weren't the men who were the experts in astrology and astronomy and in physics of the time. They weren't. His, his teachers were the Hebrews. But how did his wisdom end up being more than the wise men? Look at the next verse. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. AND HIS FAME WAS IN ALL NATIONS ROUND ABOUT. SOMEHOW, SOLOMON ENDED UP WISER THAN THE GURUS OF HIS TIME. HOW DID IT HAPPEN? LOOK AT VERSE 29. AND GOD GAVE SOLOMON, WHAT'S IT SAY? WISDOM "Wisdom AND UNDERSTANDING EXCEEDING MUCH, AND LARGENESS OF HEART, EVEN AS THE SAND THAT IS ON THE SEASHORE, You've heard the sand in the seashore to describe how many people Israel had as a nation. Did you ever hear it describe how much heart Solomon had? In other words, God really poured the wisdom into this man, and he had it. Now, I don't want you to forget. What's the man we're talking about? Solomon. Solomon. Look at one more idea, verse 34. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. Somehow... When God put wisdom into a man, you didn't need a PR program to get his wisdom out. In fact, people came to hear it. It was the noble people that came to hear it. You know, it was the presidents that came to be treated by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the U.S. presidents that came. It's not because we had to go advertise in Washington, D.C., but when God gives someone wisdom, that wisdom is special. TURN TO LUKE CHAPTER 11. LUKE CHAPTER 11 AND VERSE 31. WE'RE TALKING ABOUT THE BIBLE IN CONTRAST WITH THE WISDOM OF MEN. LUKE 11 VERSE 31. THE QUEEN OF THE SOUTH we, we almost read about her. We just didn't quite read the verses in 1 Kings 4 that would mention her in particular. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation. It sounds like she's not going to make it. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading that wrong. It says, and she shall what? Condemn. Condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of who? Was she the only one doing that? We just read that the kings were, all the kings were doing it. People were just coming all over to hear him, right? Didn't we just read that? And what does it say here? And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. That's Jesus. And this is what I'm trying to say to you. In my life, since I was. 18 years old, I have aimed for a mentor-style education. I have tried to find the wisest people I could find and to sit by them or across from them and talk to them and ask them questions and learn from them. I've made that my habit now for some 25 years. Try to find the people that know something and sit with them. That's why last week, for the last few days of Brother Jorgensen's life, I spent a lot of time with him. It wasn't because I thought he was about to die. It's because I thought he had a lot of wisdom. So I sat with him at meals and asked him questions and and drilled him on ideas. I wanted to learn what he wanted to learn, what he knew. If you have that same idea that you want to learn from people who really know something, you ought to read the Gospels. Jesus knew more than Solomon. And Solomon knew more than the wisest people on the earth, more than the gurus, more than the philosophers of Egypt, more than the astronomers of the East. Solomon knew more than all of them, and Jesus knew more than Solomon. And that connection is not lost in the resurrection. The Queen of Sheba is, or the, was it Queen? Of, is it Sheba? The Queen, of, it says, King, the of, Queen of the South. But we know who it is. She isn't losing this. She's going to realize that if she made a long trip to hear from Solomon, it won't make any sense to her at all. How people treated Jesus just as like one of the boys, or just like another book on the shelf. It just won't make any sense. To her, that we did not devour this thing where we have the wisdom. All that red letter stuff right there, that's incredible. That's better than Solomon. Didn't we just read that in Luke 11 better? I mean, I like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Son of Solomon. And and I'm not trying to put those down at all because the spirit that inspires the prophets is the spirit of Jesus. That's why the, the whole book is the spirit of prophecy. But we just read here plainly that Jesus, when he was on earth, he, it's not like Jesus put all his wisdom in Solomon, but he certainly had all of it himself. I know I've said the same thing five or six times, and I know you already understand it. I'm just trying to make it sink and be retained forever. Turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4 Deuteronomy 4 through 6 is a little part of the Bible that you really ought to familiarize yourself with part of me wishes that Deuteronomy had been named something different like a five letter word that was easy to pronounce or something because I think maybe people would read it more readily it really is not one of the more difficult books in the Bible to read it's a lot like James or 1st John it has a lot of plain practical simple to follow ideas I'm advertising for you that you might want to read what book? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Are you in chapter 4? Yes. Chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 6. Keep therefore, and what does it say? Do. Do them, for this is your wisdom. Do them would be the commandments and the judgments that God was going to teach. Do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of who? The nations. The nations which shall, what does it say? Hear Hear of these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Let me ask you, was it part of God's plan for evangelizing the planet to exalt his own wisdom among his people? It was. God's idea was that his counsels are so wise that when you practice them, people are going to say, you are wise. Do you see that there in the verse? That his counsels are so wise that when you practice them, it makes, them, it makes you look bright when you do what he says. And that brightness, does the word get out? It says the, the nations are going to hear. And when they hear, they're going to say, wow, those people that have a school like that, they really understand. The people who are doing things that way, they get it. And, it's, and what they're going to see, when they say you're wise, they don't know it, but what they really are thinking is your wisdom is God's counsel. Do you see that in the verse? It says, these will be your wisdom and your understanding, not ultimately, but in the sight of the people. What they see, I do say things three or four times, but I'm just trying to make sure people really get it. That's what I'm trying to do. It's true. It's true. That when we follow God's counsel, it makes us look incredibly bright. And when we ignore it, no one notices. But once they figure out we ignored it, it makes us look incredibly dull. That is, people who learn about the counsel say, Why didn't you tell us? You knew, why didn't you say something? You could have saved me from a whole life of misery. If you, I've met new Adventists who have this very message to share. <laughs> okay? Just, they just wonder why did we come to their door when they were 50? If we had come when they were 12, that would have just worked out all the better for them. Can anyone relate to that idea? Like, you wish you'd learned what you know now at some earlier stage in your life? Like, you wish that you'd got it. Let's, let's just prevent that from happening any more than it will. Since you're here in Deuteronomy already, look at chapter 6 for a minute. This is not highly related to what I'm saying tonight, but it is highly related to the end of time. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and look at verse 5. Do you know what's in the middle between Deuteronomy 4 and 6? Yeah, and you know the main content of chapter 5? It's the Ten Commandments. It's where this book gets its name, from the second giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, They're right there. And so chapter 6 and verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the literal thing, right? You should love God all the way. Verse 6, And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart, that is, in your mind. That's where they should be. Verse 7 And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Do you see in verse 7 that you just found the part of the Bible that talks about the Bible in Christian education? Where does the Bible fit into Christian education? In verse 7, it's not just Bible class. It is... All through your informal day that is I'm all in favor of when you're doing your math class in the primary level of using numbers and facts in the Bible there's lots of numerical facts in the Bible you could use they'll make you familiar with the Bible that's a great way to just integrate Bible and 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 stories of I mean Bible stories and math But when you're outside of the classroom, it's when you're getting up from bed, it's when you're sitting to eat, it's when you're going for a walk in the woods, out of your mouth ought to come Bible. Do you see it here in the verse? Did you just read it? And the idea is that when these things are coming out in the informal settings, I think if you look at it, you'll see every one of these settings are informal that's mentioned in verse 7. It's when our informal education agrees with the theory in our formal education, that's when we succeed in mentoring our children. When we lose our children is when our formal education is one thing and their informal education comes entirely from mass marketers. That is, the the people, maybe 8 million people who own Facebook, who through their representatives... uh, try to make sure that that there's a message going out that will please those who advertise there. I'm not even trying to say that the people who own Facebook, I mean the stockholders who control Facebook, I'm not trying to say that those people are evil. I would say that they don't know anything about your wisdom and they are okay with letting you have your children during their formal education. What they want is access to them during the informal education because they think they'll even have more influence during the informal education than you're going to get during the formal education. Can any of you, can any of you see this going on during the last few decades of this Earth's history? That the informal education is becoming very successful. In fact, it keeps kids up at night like never before in their own room by themselves well by themselves almost Uh, you know they're with other kids that are up in their own by themselves in their bedroom at night I'm talking about social media on the phones right now is what I'm talking about and uh, if we don't get a grip on the informal education our formal efforts in school we're just going to wonder why they aren't working why we're not making progress. And uh, I'll leave you parents to panic over that because as soon as you try to take over the informal education, you're going to have a rebellion on your hands because the informal educators have done a great job at becoming essential or addictive. I think you already know what I'm trying to say, and I don't even have to explain it, so I'm going to stop struggling for words. So you see verse 7, verse 5 through 7 are quite literal. The words should be in your heart. With all your soul you love God. You talk about these things during the day when you're rising, when you're sitting, wherever you go. As soon as you get to verse 8, you switch to metaphor. Do you see the word as in verse 8? Do you see the word sign in verse 8? You shall bind them as for a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Where else in the Bible do you recall a metaphor that talks about a sign that's in the hand and in the forehead? That's in Revelation. And what I just want you to understand is as soon as you get to Deuteronomy 6 you have the seed that's designed to explain the mark of the beast and the seal of God right from the very beginning in unmistakable literal language God explains that the law should be in our hearts and not just our own but in the hearts of our children isn't verse 7 all about our children? that it should be there and if that's the literal the metaphor it'd be like something right between your eyes or like something on your hand like a sign or, or like as the word as it doesn't mean that they should, like, like, put something right there. As was designed to give them an idea of an illustration. The mark of the beast, the seal of God, is an illustration of two different educations getting into the minds of people and children. And the seal of God is the right one, and the other one is no good at all. Maybe I need to show you one more point about this before I feel satisfied to move on. Look at Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3 and verse 3. We want to talk, <clears throat> or what I want to explain to you is the strange thing you see in Revelation. I know you've seen this image, so even if you don't know what chapter it's in, you can still picture it. There is an ugly looking seven headed dragon, and on top of it is a, a prostitute that is dressed in bright colors. Can't you see that picture? You've seen it, like in a thousand. uh, Anyway, you've seen it. You've seen it places. Like artists, just love to draw that one. It just matches what they were doing when they were seven or eight, and and uh, so it gets well illustrated. (laughs) That woman there has something in her forehead. It says Babylon the Great, the mother. So that's in her forehead, and she's a harlot. And if you're wondered what does it represent? What is the forehead of a harlot like? Or what is the point of that? Well, look right here in this verse. Jeremiah 3, 3. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there have been no latter rain. And you have a whore's forehead. Listen carefully. You refuse to be What? Ashamed. That is, a prostitute is not ashamed of her sins. Instead, she advertises them. This is why God picked that metaphor to illustrate the Roman system, because it's not ashamed. And if we, brothers and sisters, are not ashamed of our sins, we are preparing for the Mark of the beast. Uh, I don't know any simpler way to say it, but that's exactly the characteristic of that other system. No shame. The man who's saved—it's not that he never falls. He falls. He gets up, and he's really—he's ashamed that he fell. The man who is over there is the man who falls, gets discouraged, stays down, but eventually he loses his sense of the sinfulness of his sin. And there comes a point when it just doesn't bother him like it used to bother him. So the first thought I've tried to share tonight is just, it's one of two. It's the idea that God's wisdom, which is the foundation of all true education, God's wisdom, which is the only reliable thing, is really, it's right here. It's available It's wiser than man. It ought to have our attention. It ought ought to be not just our formal education, but our what education? It ought to fill the informal spaces of our lives because if we don't take charge of our informal education, I don't mean take charge by making policies. I mean take charge by being purposeful in what you talk about. Did you see that there in Deuteronomy uh, 6-7? The idea was that wherever you are, you find an opportunity to talk about the things that you've learned or that you've read. And somehow, the young people end up adopting as their very own uh, the values that are from their parents because they they see it in inspiration. I'll confess to you something that I do that you might not even like. I'm going to keep doing it. When I meet people who are like 15, 16, 17 years old, if I can get them at a time when they're not near their parents, when they're all by themselves, I don't mind if other people are around, but not their parents and not people who know their parents, and not people who will talk to their parents. I ask them about their parents' values, about things like diet and dress and music and entertainment and these kind of things. And then I ask the young person, "What about your own values?" Are they the same as your parents or a little different or a lot different? For a lot of young people, they never started thinking about the fact that they have their own values until I asked that question. But they do have some. And I'd rather they start thinking through their values than that they just accidentally end up with them because they're going to end up with values. And what I'm trying to help them do there is to realize that unless they come up with a good set of values before they're on their own, they're not going to have time to come up with values. They're just going to end up being pushed right into a system of the world that's not going to give them any time. Can you relate to what I'm trying to tell you? Well, don't wait until I drill your children. Make sure that they start to figure out their own ideas that they know what they think, what they see, why. It doesn't have to be a formal education. This is the kind of thing that works really well informally. I was with a young lady last week. She's 16 years old. And uh, I can tell that her dad has very successfully put his values into her. In this case, I don't think his values are precisely good. But still... I admire the success of his efforts. Uh, The way he's thinking is that she should only be baptized by a pastor in a church that is a kind of saintly situation that they might not encounter before she reaches the age of 40. And for that reason, even though she wants to be baptized, she hasn't been baptized. And she doesn't plan to get baptized until she finds that, you know, well... I tried to give her my values in that situation. Her mom was present when I was doing that. Uh, I'm not trying to talk about baptism. I'm trying to illustrate something, that here was a man who really, it was important to him to share his ideas and thoughts, and now his thoughts are his daughter's thoughts. I just admire his success. I think that if he had just Let the informal education system go its own way that, in fact, her ideas wouldn't even reflect his remotely the way they do today. I feel like I should ask if you have questions, but instead I want to make sure I get to my second sermon. Turn to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. And looking at verse 25. Ezra 7 is a chapter that we put in footnotes, but we never look it up. It has to do with that year 457 BC that we use in our evangelistic series. That's not why we're here. Ezra 7, verse 25 And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of your God listen carefully what it says that is where that is in your hand set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river all such as know the laws of your God and you teach them that know them not now where was the wisdom according to the king of Persia? it was in Ezra's hand and by the end of the verse you get an idea of what he's talking about in in the king's idea what was the wisdom of Ezra wasn't it the laws of God the ones about how to run a nation and about the judgments and about the principles to the king of of Persia when he saw what Ezra shared about the wisdom of God he saw that that is Ezra's wisdom And when he sent Ezra back to do something in Jerusalem, he said, you use that wisdom. You find people who know that stuff that you know, and people who don't know it, make sure that they know it. Oh, I hope it doesn't come to the point where our president has to tell us to get a grip on reading our own books. I don't think it'll happen. I don't think. I hope it doesn't happen. Now we're switching gears entirely. Look at John chapter 13. I might skip the children's story, but it seems criminal to do it. We'll see. Are you in John 13? John 13, verse 36. Oh, can we start that early. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, whither do you go? Jesus answered him, whither I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me hereafter. I want you to see that word, you shall follow me here afterwards, and understand how merciful or how kind or gracious that idea is. What Jesus said to Peter right here is, Peter, you are going to make it in the end. Now notice what else he says. Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot I follow you? Now I will lay down my life for your sakes. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Did Jesus predict the apostasy of Peter? He predicted his fall, but his ultimate success. Do you see that before he told him that he was going to deny him, he said that you will follow me when? Hereafter. It's more than that. We'll come back here a little bit later, but I want you to turn back to Luke 22. We're talking about a principle of education that is used often in primary schools and makes a long, a lifelong difference in the lives of young people. Luke 22, and we're going to look at verse 34. <clears throat> now, let's start in verse 32. Now, verse 31 even, I'm sorry. Luke 22:31, 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon... Behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Did Satan think that he knew... Is that English? Did he think that he knew Peter? I think that's English. In Satan's opinion, was Peter reliable? Did Satan believe that he could cause Peter to fall if he had good access to him? Satan thought, if I can just get Peter out of the protection of Jesus... I can put him to a test, and I know this guy. I know his impulsive nature. I know how much he hates to be mocked. I know how fearful he is of of people thinking badly of him. I know this guy to the core. If I can have him, I can show that this disciple is not anything special. Verse 32, but I have, what does it say? Prayed for you that your faith fail not. I hope when you read that about Peter, you read it about yourself. Because most of us, Satan knows us. He knows our weakness. He knows what we're like. He knows our addictions. He has seen them. And he's not very stressed about how it's going to go in the final test. He believes if he can just get us without special protection, he knows how that's going to go. And what does he think is going to happen? He knows us well enough to know that we're not going to make it. But what does Jesus do about that? He prays for us. And he prays that our faith will not fail. And notice what he says next. And when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Verse 33, And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I just want you to see this is the same story we just read. Can you see it's the same story? Look at the next verse. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before you shall thrice deny that you know me. Did Jesus predict that Peter would fall? He did, but before he did that, he said, but after that, you're going to be converted. And when you are converted, I'm going to have work for you to do. There are many people that when they fall, they give up on doing the work. When they make a shameful mistake, they just quit the work. Because as far as they can see, since they made a mistake, there's no sense in going forward. Everyone knows they denied Jesus three times in one night. Everyone knows that they made big claims and then blew it big time. And they're done. But before Jesus said that you're going to make the mistakes, He said, you're going to be converted. And then I strengthened the brother, and I have something for you to do. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to tell you is that when you deal with young minds, you must have confidence that they're going to make it. Not only an internal confidence, you must express that confidence you must let them know that they're going to make it. Because when they come to their biggest failure in life, when they make the, uh, probably not their biggest one, but their biggest one in their feelings, when they come to a big flub up, at that point, the fact that you have confidence in them makes a world of difference in their courage. If Peter had not thought that Jesus would pardon him and accept him, he would have committed suicide the same way that Judas did. What we're reading here is a suicide prevention program by Jesus. And it is to be real honest with people about their weaknesses, but at the very same time to express confidence over and over that they are going to make it. Uh, Let's look at the same story again. Turn to Matthew. Matthew 20-something. I don't know the reference, but we should be able to find it pretty easy probably chapter 26. It is Matthew 26, verse 31. Then said Jesus unto them, All of you shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. Did he tell the disciples they were going to leave him? He said, you're all going to leave me. Verse 32, but after that, I am risen again. I will go before who? You into Galilee. What Jesus said to Peter, he said to all of them. He said, you're going to leave me, but I'm going to gather you again. How do I know it's the same story? Look at the next verse. Then Peter answered and said unto them, Though all men should be offended because of you, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto you, This night before the cock crow, you shall thrice deny me. Peter said to him, Though I should die with you, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise said all the disciples. Jesus knew their weaknesses. Can you see they're a bit stubborn? That they don't know themselves? That they're overly sensitive and they're going to abandon him. And knowing all that, he said that when I'm resurrected, I'm going to gather you again. Let's just now turn back to John 13. And I want you to see a connection that to me is the most precious ever. John 13, we're going to start in verse 38. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto you, The cock shall not crow till you have denied me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That w- And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we know not where you're going. How can we know the way? What I want you to understand is that the break between 13 and 14 is not there. It's the same conversation. It's very clear in Desire of Ages that 14.1 is said to Peter and to the rest in response to their what they're saying about this business of denying him and what he had to say to them. It's as if he said in one breath, you're going to deny me, but I'm going to go to heaven and make a place for you. And if I go to heaven and make a place for you, I'm going to come again Don't let yourself be overwhelmed with discouragement about what's going to happen tonight or when it happens tonight. Jesus modeled education. In the book Education, there's a chapter titled An Illustration of His Methods. There have been three quotes from it uh, in presentations so far this week. When I became a teacher, one of the things I did is I memorized that chapter from the book Education. And it features, among other things, the method Jesus used to reach Peter, the method he used to reach James and John, and the method he used to try to reach Judas. And if we learn the method that he used, why, it will do us perfectly well, whether in primary education or secondary or tertiary, that's another word for college or university. It'll work in any system we use it in. It's a system that has to do with how to touch hearts, and it works like this. My ability to influence someone is proportionate to what he thinks I think about him or the confidence I have in him. Was that too complicated? Does it deserve a picture? I don't know if I could even draw it well. But when your student thinks that you think that he's going to overcome his weaknesses and make it, it puts under him a fire to be better. And when he thinks that you think that he is an imp in disguise and that he will disobey as soon as he has an opportunity, if you don't think you have good students, you are making them problem children by the very way that you relate to them. In the administration of canvassing programs, that's what I did for a good chunk of my last 25 years of life. In those, I I would talk to leaders whose programs didn't go so well. And often within a minute, I could put my finger on one of the big problems in their programs. If the leader began to talk to me about his students and their problems in the third person, they, 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 they. Almost as if it would have been a... he would have had a good program if only he had had good students. As soon as he talks to me like that, I know one of the big issues. Anyone who thinks like that doesn't get good performance out of young people. They're not gonna perform for someone like that. They think that he doesn't like them, and they're they're right. And if, they don't, if he doesn't like them, you know, they don't have a lot of affection for him either. Can any of you relate? Do you remember when you were young? My wife just held up a, sto- a picture and it said, children's story, please. Well, let me review briefly what I just said to the adults and I'll tell a brief children's story and I'll be done, okay? I'll do it. You must respect your wife. <laughs> Abigail, did you put her up to that? Okay, I'll still respect her, okay? (laughs) What I've said to you adults is really two separate but vital ideas related to how the Bible becomes the foundation of true education. The first idea is that when we follow the councils, not just the ones here but the ones in the spirit of prophecy, when we follow them, God uses that to exalt his own wisdom. His own wisdom, he advertises it. He will draw attention to it because he knows that it solves lots of problems. I think, uh, I think it might have been you, Sister Carrie, that held up the Reader's Digest article about Madison College. Uh, in that article, it brings out that the Chinese were looking at the school in Madison as a solution to a lot of their problems in China. You know, if, if things had gone the way they should have gone at that point, there probably never would have been a cultural revolution in China because the Adventist system of education reduces the stress between classes. It puts the high classes to work with the low classes and it makes the work a noble thing for anyone to do. It really is a marvelous solution to the problems that stress people all over the planet. That's the first idea that God's wisdom is so much higher than man's wisdom that God even, even tarnishes man's wisdom just so we won't be so awed by it. He doesn't want you to be so impressed with PhDs. They're just people like you. They might be right and they might not. But if they are, it's not because they have a PhD. It's because they're right. And... He he wants to tarnish this idea because until we view the contrast properly, we will never see these red letters in awe the way that the Queen of Sheba would have. We We just won't relate to God's word. How does Paul say it? We should relate to it not as it is... We should relate to it as the word of God and not as the word of man. That was the first idea. The second idea is that we should express our prayers and confidence in young people we believe that they are going to be successful missionaries we believe they are going to make it we believe they are going to get through and as we give them that expression it makes a difference for them they have the courage to stand up after they deny christ three times even in one night they can just go ahead and stand up and at some point they'll say Lord you know that I love you, which is what we want to hear. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there lived a little moose. I met this moose. I grew up in Alaska. Did you know I grew up in Alaska? I grew up in Alaska. And Alaska is far, far away. I don't know my directions right now I always feel like I'm looking south when I'm preaching. Is that north? That's north. Then Alaska is right there, okay? (laughs) uh, If this is north, Alaska is right over there, but just about 4,500 miles. And where I was in Alaska, we had a lot of snow every winter. The snow would be this deep, and it wouldn't melt all winter. You could make tunnels under it and I would see moose in my front yard. Do any of you children know how big a moose is? Moose are not like deer. I mean, they have a similar shape, but that's it. Uh, When a car hits a deer, the deer might die, and the car gets hurt. But when a car hits a moose, the car might die, and the moose gets hurt the really big things. And one day I was going for a walk, and I found a very small moose, and my mom and dad, because they didn't have as much energy as I did, were behind me on the trail, and I decided to pet the baby moose. Now a baby moose was about the same size as me, it probably stood about this tall. And I was making good progress toward the baby moose when my mom came into view of what was going on. And you know it was one of the most scary things she ever saw? Because she saw a mother moose looking at me approaching the baby moose. And mother moose, which are usually gentle, they got really sharp hooves, and they can even kill a wolf just by kicking it in the side. And my mom was so afraid and she called me back and I came back and the mother never hurt me and that's the whole story. (laughs) It's the whole thing. Aren't you glad it ended that way? Because if I hadn't listened it could have been a different story or if my mom would have been too far back it could have been a different story. And there's lots of times in life when the story could be different and it's nice when stories can be non-dramatic and short and simple don't we all wish we had a better story that was more like that non-dramatic and short and simple let's bow our heads for a prayer and we'll be done tonight our father in heaven I want to thank you that you have given a wisdom to us that can be in our hand a wisdom that even the kings of the earth can recognize as special I'm sorry on behalf of those who would agree with me I'm sorry that we've done so little to implement the wisdom and to to put it into visible action. Please bless the efforts of every person here who has a heart to do something like that. I ask for you to prepare us for your seal, and we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse